Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You're listening to Past Imperfect. Please be advised that in this episode, there are discussions of topics that some listeners may find upsetting. Hello and welcome to Past Imperfect, in association with Speakers for Schools, the youth social mobility charity that provides inspirational talks and work experience opportunities. I'm Alice Thompson. And I'm Rachel Sylvester. And we're talking to exceptional people who've overcome adversity in their early years to achieve great success. And today's guest is no less impressive. She's a woman of many talents who's been a Bond girl, released three studio albums and was nominated for an Oscar for her starring role opposite Matt Damon in Goodwill Hunting. Minnie Driver is like Jane Austen's Emma Woodhouse, handsome, clever and rich, with a home in Malibu, her own podcast and now a new memoir, Managing Expectations. But she had a complicated and tricky childhood. For the most part, we are fragile nutters, she says of actors. You have to be staunch and also fragile. Minnie Driver, welcome so much to Past Imperfect. That's such a fascinating observation. Why do you think it is? Do you think acting requires a certain vulnerability so that you can empathise and play other characters and show your emotion and somehow convey it? Yeah, I think so. I think there is a undoubtable schism in people who act. I mean, it, it is some sort of chasm that you're trying to fill or you're operating from that broken bit of you. But I don't necessarily think it's bad or sad. I just think there is, um, there's room for conflict in most actors. Well, the good ones, anyway. And they always say politics is showbiz for ugly people. But in some ways, showbiz is a way of politics for beautiful people, isn't it? That you can put your point across, but you're also having to win over an audience in a way, just like politicians. Do you, you feel do. that? Do you feel you've got an audience and you've got to win their vote? There is the sort of fight for approbation because you have you have to have an audience love you to carry on having a career. But for that to be the North Star all the time is probably quite dangerous. And following public opinion, as anyone has ever found, is a terrible idea. You really have to do your thing. And I think like a straight line. In fact, Robert Altman told me that. I made this short film with him years ago. And he said one lunchtime when I was asking him questions, you have to have the point that starts with you and your creative idea of what it is you want to do. And all these things like public opinion and trends and being the belle du jour, all of that will bisect your line, but you can never follow it. The mistake is to follow it. And I really, I really try and live by that. Well, what's so interesting, though, is that acting, in a way, is a career that fuels insecurity and it attracts people who need that affirmation, a bit like politics, actually, and there is that kind of parallel. There is. It's like you're, being, you're always being synthesised by other people. Well, maybe you are as a politician, but as, when, as an actor, you know, you're through the lens of the director and the editor and the cinematographer and then the producer and the studio and then the publicity, the publicity campaign. Like, you are constantly, in a way, being diluted. And I think that 
politicians get to manipulate that a lot more than actors do. I think it's why you see actors taking the reins, wanting to write and direct movies and actually be in control of the, the narrative a bit more. And it was certainly part of writing the book was so incredibly strange and satisfying not telling somebody else's story, but my own. But telling your own. Mm. Yeah. And is it weird because you started off in Hampshire and you, know, you went to a boarding school that was, you know, green rolling hills, and then you've ended up in Hollywood. Which do you feel is more you in the end? Well, the thing is, where I live in California, it is the Californian equivalent of being in the country. I know the word Malibu, it kind of, it has all of this glamour attached to it, but actually it's a lot more like North Cornwall than it is anything else it's 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 cliffs and long beaches and surfing and community and very um rugged in a way and so the things i loved about growing up in the countryside in england in hampshire are the things that i still love to do which is to be in nature to be comforted to be in the ocean as much as possible to be freezing cold and then to have a barbecue <laughs> like it's i think very i have English. sought the things that I really love. Peel off that wetsuit. Yeah, exactly. Getting out of your wetsuit. I've, I've, I've just, I've just, I actually took my stitches out myself. From I had five stitches in my leg from a fin that <laughs> caught me and cut through my wetsuit. But I didn't take my wetsuit off until the end of the day because I knew if I took it off before, I would get out of the water, and that was exactly the right thing to do. You go to urgent care when you take your wetsuit off at the end of the day, <laughs> not before. Right. <laughs> But you once said that you came to Hollywood still working out trauma from your past. What did you mean by that? What happened in your childhood that drove you there? Well, I think it was, you know, listen, my parents were not together. And when other people walk into the landscape, you, and also remember in the 70s and 80s, we didn't talk about stuff. Like stuff just happened to you you would arrive at the place that you were now going to live without there being much explanation. But I think also I was a very emotional child and that was also inconvenient for adults. You have to really make a choice to stop and address a child's overwhelming emotion that is often unchecked. But definitely doing it heals any later trauma I've noticed with my own kid. If I stopped and listened to what he had to say, what terrible, tragedy had befallen him and his G.I. Joe <laughs> in the garden, if I stopped and listened, it didn't turn into like needing attention and needing, I, I think. Mm. So nobody with did all, that for you when you I were think with, I think that it just wasn't, you know, my mum's father was a Victorian, quite literally born in 1883. Like my dad was born in 1921. Like this came from a generation where he just didn't. He just didn't. They were lovely, amazing people who were dealing very significantly with their own trauma that I only found out much, much later mm. and could understand. So, you know, it's sort of epigenetic, right? Stuff gets passed on until you just decide, oh, I don't want to be traumatized by this anymore. I want to heal that. I want to get on with this. I want to have a lot more fun because there's just, there's a time limit on all of this. There's a clock ticking. We want to take you back to your childhood because your mother was a model, wasn't she? And then yeah. your father's a war hero. Was, I hadn't realized he was born that early, but it, but yeah, they were a very different sort of couple. You went from Barbados to London, you were moved around a lot. What can you remember most about those very early years when they were actually together, sort of when you were sort of one to six? It was really amazing. Like I, I, I know we spent a lot of time in the south of France and in Deauville and in Argentina because my dad was a polo player. And so glamorous. I, it was pretty, I guess, it was pretty glamorous. But you know, when you're, when you're little, 
I remember going to the shops with my sister to buy the bread when we were, you know, I must have been five and she was seven. I remember the flowers, I remember that heat, that heat in the south of France, which is very much like the California dry heat. And I remember the horses and my mother and, and dad together. But it, it is interesting when you can really vividly remember the stuff that predates, I you know, know exactly where our life changed, which is when my mother had left my dad and we arrived at this little cottage that we were gonna live in, um, not knowing that we were gonna live there. And it being pretty, pretty rank, not that fun. Certainly not Deauville. Yeah, and what do you remember of that time? It's hard because I, I think it was, um, really what I was traumatised by was boarding. There was this separation from home. And I, I thought that it would cure everything if I could just get back home. But I wonder now if it really would have because I think it, I was better off at this lovely, amazing creative school that gave me all of these outlets for all of the the creativity and the emotion that I had. Why um, did you go to boarding school? Was it because, did you, you had a well, stepfather? Mum had to get us into school. The judge gave her seven weeks to get us into school in 1976, which is when my parents split up. That was the first year that a woman could sign for a mortgage without a male co-sign. That's incredible. Isn't we it? were made mm. wards of court because my parents weren't married. And the judge, very in a very draconian but typical fashion, said that if she wanted custody of us, she had to be married and have us in school and own her own house. And he gave her seven weeks to do that, which is, you know, he knew that she wouldn't be able to do that, but she did it. Did she find a husband then to marry? Yeah, I think she was already having a relationship with a chap. And she, I think she was very lovely, my mother. He was very lucky to have had the opportunity to marry her. <laughs> so they got married happily. She bought this tiny falling down cottage and she went to the school that she had been to. She found the cottage near the school and said, will you take my kids? And they found a spot for us, for me and my sister. And I didn't board right away. I boarded a couple of years after we first got there. And I think then it really was because, I don't know, I didn't get on with my stepfather. He and I had a very different approach to maths. I. <laughs> did not feel that it was something I could really get my head around. I loved the patterns. I loved how beautiful maths looked. I appreciated that, but I wasn't really willing to spend time turning my brain into scrambled eggs to try and figure it out. And he very much felt like I needed to sit and do that. But obviously I wouldn't sit there. I would escape and run away and not do what he wanted me to do. And there was one occasion where he was really furious and I was rude and he slapped me. And then I drew around the handprint that the slap left in Sharpie so I could just sit and look at him, which I think was a very, I think that was actually a very creative way of serving something back to someone who has wronged you. Yeah, what did <laughs> your mother mm. say? I don't really remember what my mother said, but my mother was, she was married to this man now. And I was this big character that I don't think, I don't think either of my parents really knew how to, how to handle me because it meant dealing with emotion that I think they themselves were not that comfortable with. Mm. Did you feel you needed to protect her or did she want to protect you? Or, or was it your sister that looked after you? Or was I think that it was my sister was always mm. the protector of everybody. And I think practically now sending me to, boarding school, having me bored 
was a way of solving for a lot of the difficulties at home. And did you run um, away at all? Or did you... I ran away the whole time. Whenever my mother would take me back, I'd jump out of the car and I would run through the fields and I would save money thinking I was going to go and find my nanny and get on a train to Kent. I mean, I would never get very far. Like, I got as far as the train station three times and I would usually go up this tree. I would usually go up this really beautiful 500-year-old oak tree that was on the property of the school and I would sit up there until it got dark. But it turned out, didn't it, that your father had a whole other family. How did you find that out and how did that make you feel? Well, how old was I when I found that out? I think I was, I was quite young when I found that out. But you have to understand that when you don't really know any different, I just thought this was the dealings of adults, that right. people, that people did that. Mm. And you went out to see him, didn't you, in Barbados when you were very young and then he just asked you to leave, so you ended up in a hotel on your own. No, it's not exactly like that. We, we, my dad had built this wonderful house in Barbados, which is a place that he loved and I think had healed a lot of like his war trauma there. And it wasn't until I was about 11 when he had a new girlfriend and I, you know, again, stranger in, on, in the landscape of my territory... I got into a fight with her and I don't think was kind. And again, it was a sort of draconian response to a child being, I think I was rude, I was, I was angry, I was emotional. But my dad was like, well, you're out of here. And because there wasn't a direct flight that day, he sent me on a flight back to England, but it went via Miami for a, a day and a night. And I, I spent a day and a night in a hotel by myself and had an adventure that was epic and <laughs> well, did you raid the amazing. minibar on no I, he left a credit card on file and I was very enterprising <laughs> at 11 I bought the entire gift shop and spent all his money and hung out and the then was pool. well I was basically sort of home alone it scenario. was a bit home alone. shocking yeah. really in a way well now it's really shocking mm. when I think about if I think about that being my child mm. it's astonishing it was quite cinematic like when I think back it was very enterprising and I ended up I ended up hanging out for the whole well most of the afternoon with this Cuban exile and his family who was in a cabana. Basically, I wanted to get out of the sun and the, the, the pool boy wouldn't give me a cabana because I was 11. <laughs> and this guy, I was making a fuss or I was like, I've got, I want to get, he kept telling me to go back to my room and I was like, I'm not going to get sent back to my room by another person. <laughs> and this guy came out of a cabana and he was like, what's the problem? And he couldn't believe I was there by myself. Yeah. You know, this lovely Latino man. And he just took me in and I sat there and had lemonade and told him why I was in trouble. Was your mother furious about it or not when you got home? Do you know what's so weird? I don't really remember. I don't think so. I honestly think they were quite exasperated with my antics. I honestly think that emotion, I think for a lot of people, it's why I love being an actor because it gives me somewhere to put it, but I think for a lot of people it is so difficult to metabolise emotion and that when someone is emotional it forces us to look at our own emotion and most people would like to keep that tamped down they want it in bite-sized pieces that when I go to the movies literally move I will be moved when I go to the movies or I turn the television on and then I can turn it off and someone else is doing the emoting for me but when it's your child I don't know like I I'm glad it they didn't have the bandwidth I think for the mm. kind of the breadth of emotion that I had and I'm I understand that. I really understand that 
now. And I think that it's, I think it's okay. I mean, I know it's okay. But it was, it was a sort of time, double but... rejection in a way. Both parents, you didn't really have anywhere that you Well, they did, home. they did. They, they, they absolutely adored me and they, they really did. But they, for them, this was, a, this was a, a proper sort of solution to a problem that was not sustainable. Mm. And I wonder if that is part of what my mother felt. I was safer at school and safer out of getting into fights with my stepfather. You know, that's not healthy for anybody. Mm-hmm. Um, and is that when you started acting when you were at school? Yeah, right from the, from the minute I got there, virtually from day one, age six. I really, we, we did a devised play. I remember it was like the first thing that we did. It was, it was just amazing and it never stopped. It was just a constant flow of writing and reading and performing and, you know, to, to an audience or not to an audience. But this, this idea of creativity being a siphon for everything was, mm. um, was so met and it wasn't, there was no fanfare around it at my school. It was just how it was. It's just what you did. Did you like being the main part? Though? Yeah, I mm. love, but you know what? They would often make me not the main part. And then they'd write in my school report like you know this is good for her (laughs) it's really good for her to be in the chorus because you're too good at being the main part no I just think it's also just you get a bit full of yourself Mm. and it was good training for the extraordinarily humbling reality of being (laughs) an actor who's constantly being rejected and out of work what was your best part was there one yeah I I played Glinda in when I was eight in uh, The Wizard of Oz the musical and they let me do it I wanted, I asked if I could be in a white jumpsuit on roller skates and they let me, they let me do that. That was really, that might have been the pinnacle of my own personal success as a matter of fact. It was pretty heavenly. And did you ever meet your father's other family? Yes. And yeah, yeah. did well, you yeah, end up close They're... to them at all? Or? Yes. I mean, I mean, for, it was much easier for a child to be friends with a glamorous older sister and my father's first wife was so gracious and kind and lovely i just thought they were these rather wonderful people but i imagine it was a lot more painful for them Mm. did it affect your relationship with your mother do you think in the end well yes there was a lot that needed going through and healing and the wonderful thing about my mother for all of the faulted stuff that is there in all of us is that she was really prepared to do that with me like we went to therapy once together. We had this massive three-hour therapy session. I heard all of the stuff that gave context to why she was a lot of, the way that she was around a lot of things. And she had been thrown out of her home age 16 by the woman who her father had married six weeks after her mother died. Like those, that's why I talk about like the epigenetics, mm-hmm. like the trauma that's handed on. And the minute you understand that, it gives context to the own sa- the sadness that you've experienced. And... In a way, it's galvanizing because you go, everybody has got their, I'd say a stronger word, but I'll say stuff. Mm. Everybody has that, mm. everyone. And that's what you have to get your hands into. And mum was very willing to talk about it later. Like later, like when I was in my, I suppose in, in my early 30s, that's when we really, and we became, I think, such better friends as a result of that. It was really amazing. Was there a period, though, when you almost felt she'd misled you or that there must have been quite hard when you first found out? No, I just think there was a distance. I think there's, mm-hmm. a, there's a, an aloofness that when someone has been living a story that's like their, their story 
and you have your own narrative as a child of what you think it should look like. I just think we had very different ideas of what the story was. Mm. But it's sort of like things slotting into place when that's what context does. Is that is why this cancel culture right now is so utterly terrifying because you are banned from any kind of healing. You're not allowed to make a terrible mistake, own it, learn from it, and evolve. The idea that you would, there would be some infraction, that you would do something and not, not ever really be allowed to recover from that or to heal from that or to own it, to process it. It's like this, this guillotine that it's just done. And I don't understand how, if everything about being a human being is about process, everything is about transformation, everything, even, even death, having watched my mom die, I watched her transform, like her life became something else. I don't know what it is, but I don't really understand the idea of a truncation or somebody never being able to evolve from, from a position or at least having the opportunity to do that. Mm. When you were 17, you had another really traumatic event that happened to you when you were in Greece. Oh, yeah, that was pretty terrible. That was, that was you know, on a lovely, really cheap Greek holiday. It was just late night in a, like a very local disco mm. on a very small island. And I wouldn't dance with, I wouldn't dance with this guy. And my cousin stepped in to sort of tell him to back off. And he hit my cousin and then I got angry or I said something and then this guy punched me. And I, I've, you know, I've never been punched. It's quite, a, it's, it's quite something. It's quite awful. But, I always say but at the end of this, I don't know, I think maybe if you're lucky it makes you, it makes you stronger or it makes you appreciate mm. that... Um, or more angry, really. Mm. It can make you more angry, but that's a choice. Mm. So how did the police mm. react? Did you go to the police? Oh, yeah, the police got the guy, and then they, and the, but the police were very much like, sure, if you want to come back and sit in Athens for the rest of the summer and yeah. prosecute this guy, mm. then sure. And, like, I don't know, like seeing this guy in a, in a police cell, it's like, what are you going to do? Because mm. they were right. Did I want to do that? Mm. No. But then after the Sarah Everard death, there was this sort of extraordinary sense in Britain that every woman has their story, don't they? Everyone every has single woman. Some I've never story of abuse or rape or 100%. being hit. And that, that is extraordinary that you can never really... Or of men passing that mm. and going, look, mm. love, yeah. do you really want to... So then women don't because they're men always. Do you really yeah. want to mm. make a fuss? Mm. And like, it'll be... And it's normalised so that no one thinks it's an issue. I think that's... I think that, you know, I definitely carried that with me and that... Mm as we've now all know, not just in my business, but in so many businesses where there are abuses of power, it's women not feeling that they, they will be heard if they speak up and go, this isn't right. Mm. Or that nobody stepped in in that disco, apart from, you know, a 15-year-old mm. boy. So do you think it's better than when we were 17 or actually is it just bad in a different way or even worse? So you've got now even Tory MPs recently saying Angela Rayner was distracting oh, the Prime Minister Lord. by crossing her legs. It's almost like we can't, still it's can't just, move on. Yeah, I think what is brilliant now is that there is recourse that Angela Rayner can say, you know, this basic instinct gate of how utterly absurd, revolting and stupid mm. it is that that would be the Tory reaction 
I don't know if it's going to change anything. It doesn't look like it's changing mm. anything much currently, but um, at least we're talking about mm. it. I remember, you know, the British press really vilified me for a while for this one thing where I spoke up on this movie, Hard Rain, because I, was, I wasn't allowed to wear a wetsuit underneath my costume because they needed to see my breasts. And when I said this is wrong, they funneled that to the press and then it was Minnie Driver throws a tantrum and calls her agent mm. on a set when there was abuse happening. Mm. You're listening to Past Imperfect in association with Speakers for Schools with Alice Thompson, Rachel Sylvester and our guest, the actor Minnie Driver. There'll be more from us after this. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome back to Past Imperfect, in association with Speakers for Schools, with Alice Thompson, Rachel Sylvester, and our guest, the Academy Award-nominated actor, Minnie Driver. There's an amazing moment in your book when you talk about one of the... You, you go to a casting for an ad, and you realise it's an ad for chocolate, and all these women are lined up, and you suddenly realise that, you know, they've got all these men in suits around you, and they want you to fake an orgasm. I mean... It's a yeah. kind of rather amazing, but also unbelievable. And not even once, you have to keep doing it, don't you? And, and, and yeah, you're the only one that walks out. Yeah, I wonder if they made that. I mean, they might, I wonder if that commercial exists somewhere. Mm. Because it was really specific. Like, you had to pretend. They were, they were couching it in, well, they did it in When Harry Met Sally, mm. so it's totally fine for you to do it now. And that was there. But it was 17 ad executives on their lunch break, like men sitting around with a male director and a male camera dude and this high stool with this thing full of bits of chocolate and they wanted you to eat the chocolate and then fake having an orgasm like Meg Ryan and When Harry Met Sally. And then they wanted you to do it again, bigger, because they said that, had to, that was going to be for the Netherlands market because oh, the Dutch required a, a bigger, <laughs> orgasm bigger orgasm in their, in their commercials <laughs> for chocolate. And about halfway through, like, you know, I had a go. Like, I had a go, and it was just mortifying. Just mo just mortifying, and I knew it was wrong. I knew I just should have gone. I shouldn't have even done it once. And they all just sort of really lasciviously just sort of leant forward. It was so revolting. 
Then when they said do it again, I was like, no, no, I'm not. No. And, and the, uh, the director was angry and said that, um, said that I was difficult, like called my agent, like they called my agent and said, yeah, she's difficult, wouldn't hire her, don't, wouldn't hire her again. We'll, we'll tell the casting director. Mm. Yeah. yeah, and censured basically for, for calling something out that was quite right to go, no. Mm. And instead just felt guilty and shameful that I didn't go in the room and tell all those other girls to not go and do that. Mm. And then in some ways, like, you know, carry on doing that or making those allowances in Hollywood just because there, <clears throat> there was no, there was no recourse. Mm. So do you feel that Harvey Weinstein was uh, almost part of a systemic problem or was he just uniquely no. hideous? I mean, he no, no, I mean, said he was, some hideous things about you, didn't he? He but, was uniquely hideous, yeah. but he was, he was definitely part of a uniquely hideous system. Okay. Uh, there are plenty of people who behaved like that. So um, when you got the part for Goodwill Hunting, that was his film, wasn't it? Wasn't well, it, it, was it, was, it was Miramax bought it mm. from Castle Rock and... Harvey Weinstein, Matt Damon had this movie, The Rainmaker came out, this Francis Ford Coppola mm. movie, and it did really well. Harvey Weinstein said, great, we'll make this movie. Robin Williams is in it. And then they went to get to find the girl. And, you know, I was really good. I was really good. But mm. Harvey Weinstein said to everybody, she's not, I don't know, can you say fuckable? Yeah, so. <laughs> <laughs> Look, it's England. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. It's unbelievable. And then you, you got nominated for an Oscar, yeah. so that was... I know, but I think he would, probably try, he would have probably tried to take credit for that as well. Mm. But he was so grotesque and ugly and revolting. The mm -hmm. idea that he could then turn around to other people and say... That's profound irony. Mm. It's like, how dare you know, you... Just man, as was, you say, had food all over him. There was, there was all the sort of dried tuna and mm. egg down his shirt. He was revolting. Mm. So do you think things have changed since he went to jail or not really? I don't know, a bit. I think people know that there's... There are more places for, for people to go who have complaints and they can make things very public very quickly. So there's a lot more responsibility taken by the studios who don't want to get sued. And I hope that care about the people who work for them and them having some kind of HR recourse that was not there previously. But I don't know how much every, anything changes or how fast. Mm. I think it is different. I mean, I know it's different, but how different I couldn't speak to. When Goodwill Hunting came out, it was just brilliant and electric and it was, it was one of those films that everyone remembers for generations but you then your life changed overnight didn't it as you say you had men with cameras you know looking out your vagina as you say it's it must have just been astonishing you had one moment didn't even a lift when you were just yeah. getting root canal and someone burst into tears the moment they saw you yeah yeah and how did it's that affect very, you very weird it's not real people don't see mm. a human being they see this version that there's something that they have in their head but you are that thing mm. So it's quite hard to keep hold of who you are as a person. And when you're very, when you're young as well, and you're still finding out who that person is, mm. you're not quite sure what you're meant to hold on to and what you're really meant to let go of. So it was, I'm sure there are people who are, I mean, I know there are people who are much better at it than I was. I was not good at being famous. You have to be made of really stern stuff. It's pretty, it, it looks like it's, it's so hard to explain because it looks like it is just this glamorous, wonderful mm. and because it is that but it is all this other stuff as well and this strange fishbowl and every single thing that you say or that you eat or that you do or who you date or who you marry 
is picked over and also had a huge light shone on it. It must be even worse now mm. with social media. Like, I am so glad mm. that there's, that that didn't exist when I was famous. Do you not think of yourself as famous now? Not like that, no. Mm. I mean, you'd go mm. into supermarkets and your face would be everywhere, wouldn't it? It's... Yep, yep. How did that feel at that age? I mean, part of you can't help but be incredibly excited by it and it'd be amazing on the cover of Cosmopolitan and, you know, it's amazing. But you also have a bit, well, if you're me, a bit of imposter syndrome. Mm. And then also thinking that that's real is very dangerous because... Mm. I don't know. I don't, it's not really sustainable. It's so fleeting. Mm. It's fleeting Fickle. and it's beautiful. Mm. And in a way, if you could just appreciate it as like this butterfly moment of your life mm. and like, and just enjoy it. But then when it, when it has to settle down because you can't stay there, mm. like be relieved by that as opposed to thinking that you've lost something, find relief in it mm. and go, this is wonderful. Now I get to step back for a bit. But that requires a maturity mm. that you don't, you mm. just don't have when you're 24. And also 25. part of it was the relationship with Matt Damon, which everyone was completely yeah. obsessed was by, all... which must have been really hard. That you're, yeah. You have your first very serious relationship and the whole world is waiting to see what Yeah, that next. wasn't easy. That wasn't easy. I mean, like who, every single person, come on, pretty much every single person has been dumped at some, surely. Mm. Maybe there are some mm. people out there who are total sociopaths who have never been dumped, right, <laughs> who are watching this, but, you know. I think most people have. And if we all know how awful that is and you just want to lie on the sofa and like never see that person and you might even like deliberately avoid going to places that you would see that person, mm. it is quite something to actually have billboards forever of that person. And it's weird. Like it's a, it's a really strange thing to, to publicly be heartbroken. But can but, you now enjoy yes, the relationship? In a I way, can. can you look back and think that was extraordinary? We had this incredible relationship and it's on the set. It's the most hilarious, like ridiculous, like overly dramatic story. It's proper soap opera mm. and it was mm. agonizing at the time. And I wish I could go back and really put my arm around that girl and be like, it's mm. honestly, it's so all right that you genuinely are so fine not being his girlfriend. Mm. Just carry on and have a have a great time and enjoy it or wish I'd enjoyed it a bit more. Because you got nominated for an Oscar, which in a way must have been just sensational, but at the same time you were going through yeah. the Matt Damon breakup. So Yeah, that was shocking. That was that, a bummer. That was a real bummer. Because mm -hmm. you should have really been able fun. to enjoy that, really. Well, I did. I mean, I really did enjoy it. I enjoyed it a lot and it was also very painful. It was both things, as my mother says to me, which I wrote in the book. Like She was like, it can be both things. Mm -hmm. It can be painful and amazing like life life is it's nothing mm. is one thing everything is tinged with something else and that was a particularly that was just a you know particularly annoying that one would be heartbroken in the moment of this celebration but you know that's how that's how it was so your mother's advice wasn't it was to love him with loose hands but yeah. it's almost impossible at that age when you're i think it's just being like it was also utterly my expectation that this young man who all he wanted to do was be a successful actor and be famous and be brilliant and be venerated like we all did the idea that like he was going to love me and me alone and this was it and we were going to get married <laughs> like bless my sweet heart for thinking that but rather amazing you did but you I was so hopeful so sad mm. and so naive however 
I did get there in the end, I think, I'm pretty sure. But also, yeah, I had a huge expectation of him. He, he, he could have behaved, he could have behaved slightly better, but also it was fully in keeping with being a 25-year-old dude. It was very hard at the time. You write in the book that you don't just have to win the lottery, you have to keep winning it again and again and again. Yeah. There's something so relentless about Yeah, that's being an actor as yeah. well. You do, you have to keep winning the lottery. It's funny, like on social media, like the, the worst thing someone thinks they can say to me actually is like about relevance. The notion of, you know, being relevant mm. or irrelevance. And I find that really interesting because you just can't. You can only be relevant to yourself. And is you it worse as life. a woman, do you think? Because everyone else is trying to project onto you what you're meant to look like, what you're meant to do, what you're meant to think. Well, I'm sure they do that with men as well, but I think women just pay a higher price for it. Yeah. Mm. And women are constantly being denigrated by, you know, Angela Rayner, perfect example, like mm. this, this public denigration. It's weird, that it feels systemic. But my son's generation, they just will not tolerate that mm. shit. Mm. I know that. Mm. I know that for sure. So I think we just, it's like growing your hair out. You just got to grow out the dinosaurs, yeah. just wait them out. And what are women actors like to each other? Is it very competitive in Hollywood or are you, are you all very supportive? Do you oh, feel this huge pressure about how you look and your weight? And, I'm no. too old to hang out with people who mm. are that competitive. Like it's a, that's a total bore. Yeah. No. Did you have role models though when you were younger that you thought, right, I'm going to be Yeah, that Isabella Rossellini was mm. a huge, I mean, when I was younger, like when I made Big Night, she was the kindest, most beautiful, angelic. It all, almost feels like I'm recalling a dream when I think about her. She was just exquisite. Mm. But yeah, I was raised in the, in the 90s in Hollywood. You were, you were not, it was hard to be friends with other girls. You were pitted against each other. But I don't know, I like women. Mm. I like women. I don't have any time for women who don't like women. I really. And you've always been really close to your sister. And I've always been mm. very close to my sister. Yeah, I love women. Women are cool. I, by the way, I love men too, sometimes too much. <laughs> Do you, is there a sort of generational split in Hollywood between, particularly over the culture war issues, over the nature of feminism and how women should be to each other, what a woman is even? Well, I mean, in our world, is it impossible to avoid it now? Mm. I don't think it is. I think it's part of this, it's this current climate that we're in and there's so much that is transitioning. I said to my friend who is a trans woman the other day, I said, you have to remember that I'm transitioning too. Like I'm transitioning to learn how to to speak so that I'm not misgendering people so that I'm it's like learning a whole new cultural language. And I think we need a lot of patience. And, and that's why compassion. when you talk about the sort of the cancel culture, there is an element of that, isn't there? That we're all learning we are all going to make mistakes. That you... also we're just human. We're we're going to fuck it up. Mm -hmm. 100%. You you're probably going to have to cancel everybody. Mm -hmm eventually, because there is just no such thing as getting it right 100% of the time and somebody is going to be sad somewhere because that's just what we do as humans. We fumble around trying to figure it out. My version of what is right is not necessarily your version of what is right and the same goes for what's wrong. That's hard, but that's also life. Mm -hmm. And the choices you made after Goodwill Hunting, what did you, did you purposely go for films that you thought would be edgier? I think I just went for things that I really liked. My, my dad always said to me, like, make films that you would want to go and see. Mm. Like, and I really, I really have tried to do that. Sometimes you, sometimes you don't have that, the choice, the luxury of doing that. You just have to take a job that's going to 
pay your mortgage or something. But but in a way, that's quite relaxing, isn't it? Just to know that you you're doing a job. Yeah. If you don't get caught up in your own narrative mm. of what you think you should do, which mm. I can definitely go down that thing. Oh, I should have done that movie. I should have done that. It's like my mum always used to say, you should bury the word should in the back mm. garden. Like mm. It's just what is. Like, do the best thing that's in front of you. Just sort of do the best you can. So I, I think that's what I did after Goodwill Hunting. I probably could have made a few more commercial choices, but I didn't. But I made films that I really loved. Like I loved Ideal Husband and The Governess and Return to Me. Like I loved those films. Like I'd stand by them a million mm. times over. And it's easier as you get older, I think, to do that. So we both always yeah. say we love getting older and it's much better being 50 than being 20. Do oh you think, gosh. are you much happier in your 50s than your 20s? Yeah, I'm just a lot, I think just a lot more together. Mm. You definitely are. It's just such a bore that like, your bum isn't in the same place. <laughs> That's all I miss about my 20s is my bum. But it's, you know, I wouldn't, I actually would not go back for any, anything, no. including my 20-year-old bum. <laughs> I would not. Do you still feel you have to have loads of treatments and you have to look, you know, immaculate the whole time? No, I want to look good. I want to look good. Everyone said, you've got to ask Manisha, how does she do oh. her hair? And you do <laughs> well, I do have professionals who, like, have taught me. I've literally got... 30 years of people teaching me how to do my hair and how to deal with it and how to make it look the best mm. it can. So it's not just that I somehow figured it out. Like I had good hair and I had people who helped me figure it out because it was very difficult hair when I was younger. But it is great. It was hair. brutal because <laughs> there were no products and I didn't know what to do and I looked like Slash, who was in a band. This is the Sunday <laughs> Times. Do you know who Slash is? Do you know who Slash is? Okay, good. I looked like Animal and the Muppets. <laughs> I'll give you some more references. I looked like I had been through a hurricane and a hedge. And your sister had this blonde sleek hair. And Kate just had beautiful blonde straight hair. Mm. Yeah, I mean the whole the whole thing. Like I say in the book, and it's a very good descri description. I was the eternal King Kong to my sister's Fay Ray. <laughs> and it's true. Did you ever act that out? No, but I, when I was writing it, I was like, oh, my God, what, I know what it is. I'm King Kong and she is Fay Ray. She's, that's it. She's just this beautiful blonde in a bias cut white silk slip dress. And I'm a galumping gorilla. But you must love your looks now, don't you? I mean... No, no. Everyone I mean, wants I, to have I'm the, thick, long, I'm, dark hair. Don't I mean, it's perfect. I like being. I really like being strong. I like being physically strong. I love my body for how strong it is. I love my hair because I've learned to love it, and it's you know, it's good hair. And being a difficult woman, and being tough, and having stood up really for not doing ads when you had to fake yeah. orgasms. I like to think that it was brave. I wish. It was, it hurt a lot at the time. It hurt a lot, like reading dreadful things in the press when, about your family and about you and suppositions about who you are and lies about the way that you behave. Like that was really painful. But ultimately, like, I don't know. I don't think it did permanent damage. Mm -hmm. It did damage at the time. But then you, you just find ways of, of using that, of turning it into something else. You just turn everything into something else and then it doesn't 
it doesn't beat you down. Do you think that's because you overcame difficult things in your childhood that it does give you a sort of strength and a resilience that you learn from it? Mm. I think hard things are super creative. Mm. It's why diamond, you know, pearls are created out of grit and diamonds pressure and all of these things. Like, oh, I could, you know, do Mm. a thousand really annoying analogies about Mm. how conflict, conflict is very creative. Mm. It is. Mm. And And what would you have said now, do you think, to your six, seven-year-old self when you were going off to boarding school? Oh, my gosh. I would have said... I would just so have loved to be able to secretly tell her it is just going to be fine. It's going to be so fine. Don't sweat it. Mm. Don't sweat any of this. It will be fine. Ignore the bullies. Ignore the things that people say. And just, and just get on and have fun. Going back to that comment you made about actors have to be staunch and fragile, do you now feel you're more staunch than fragile? No, I'm exactly both. Really, really. Mm. I cry the whole time. It's so annoying. My poor boyfriend, my poor sister. (laughs) Mm. I cry. I cry a lot. I find life really hard and sad sometimes. But I'm also now old enough and wise enough to go that, well, it's just like weather emotion. Mm. You just have to wait for it to pass. I think we've got some questions from the audience. In fact, we have a lot of questions, but... We only got time for a few, but is yeah. it okay if we run through yeah, yeah. a few of them now? Yeah, yeah, 100%. Both Samantha Flander and John Foster have asked whether you've regretted turning down. Yeah, I do. Parts. I do. I regret... Um, there's this... Um, Jennifer Lopez took the role after I turned it down in this movie called The Wedding Planner, and I wish I'd done that because it was really... It would have been a smart thing to do. <laughs> but also, she's really great in that yeah. movie. So, I mean, it doesn't even bum me out watching it. But, yeah, I, I probably, from a business point of view, I probably should have done that movie. It was a big commercial movie. Mm. And Trisha Pugh asks, politically and culturally now, would you prefer living in California or England? I mean, I never thought I'd say this, but it really feels like it's much of a muchness, politically and culturally. I mean, I'm... I disappear into nature when I can't deal with the politics anymore. And for me, a surfer, doing that in California is easier. But, you know, we're in the middle of this massive culture war in both countries. And that's difficult to digest wherever you live. But I always want to go for a surf. And the water's marginally warmer in the summer (laughs) in California. So I choose California. And Kay Elliott actually says probably what you've said is how do you stay grounded amongst all the Hollywood fanfare? Is it just taking your surfboard out? Yeah, it's my, it's my kid and my boyfriend mm. and my friends and surfing, swimming all the time. And you've now found the man, haven't you? That's... Yeah. Yeah, I found him. Well, he Amazing. found me. He's the greatest thing ever. Yeah. And Miriam McCarchy, you've got a very good question about live theatre. Do you consider live theatre and acting? Do you, do you like doing that more sometimes than film? And is it very different? It's very different. I haven't done a lot of it, not through lack of wanting to do it. When I was younger, it's all I wanted to do. And I just, I really kept getting hired in television. And all I wanted to do was be in the theatre. There were a fair few plays I'd really like to do. I would like to do that. I think that will happen. Any particular part you really want to do? I really want to play um, Isabella in Measure for Measure. I would really like to do that with Mark Rylance. Mm. Mark? Okay. Not sure if he's a subscriber. <laughs> Would really like That'd to work with Ivo Van Hove, who directed 
amongst other things, the view from the bridge. Yeah, I'd go and watch that for sure. Mm. So Nicola Ferreira says, Hi Minnie, I'm a huge fan, love your style. Can I please ask, what do you consider to be the highlight of your acting career to date? And we can put that with Carol Shaw, who says what's been your most challenging role? I think my favorite and the, one of the hardest was in this, this TV show I made called The Riches, which was with Eddie Izzard and I, um, we played uh, travelers who accidentally kill a couple and then assume their identity. And I had to play, you know, a drug addict and I was from the South. So there was like accent. I had, to, it was physically very challenging. I had to get very thin. It was amazing. It was my first like proper TV show where I got to like develop this character. It wasn't just in a movie that you shoot for three months and it's done. It was like this developing amazing character. And I'm, I still, I, it was my favorite character to date. That's all we have time for. So a huge thanks to Minnie Driver thank and thank you all to people at home watching. And don't forget to pick up your book, Minnie's book, which is there, <laughs> which is called Managing Expectations, which is a great title. Thank you. But actually, um, I think you've exceeded everyone's expectations. Thank you, Minnie. Very welcome. Thank, thank you. you for listening. You've been listening to Past Imperfect in association with Speakers for Schools, the youth social mobility charity that provides inspirational talks and work experience opportunities with Alice Thompson, Rachel Sylvester and our guest this week, the actor Minnie Driver. The series producer is Ben Mitchell. Listen back to all our previous episodes on the free Times Radio app or you can download them from wherever else you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed what you heard, why not pick up a copy of our book, What I Wish I'd Known When I Was Young, which features insights from our interviews with guests such as Brian Cox, Eddie Marson and Angela Rayner. We'll be back with more Past Imperfect next week. Thank you for listening to Past Imperfect. If you've been affected by any of the issues raised in this episode or others in the series, please go to our podcast page or website, where there are links to charities and organisations who are there to help.